going to bring us into a subject that probably not many of us really struggle with, uh, but having grown up in, in uh, Judaism and in the Old Covenant uh, and the importance of the angelic realm in, uh, in Israel's history uh, may, would have been more of, a, of an issue that they would wrestle with, but we need to understand it. Um, so I want us to bring us into that this morning. <clears throat> um, on a dark night about a hundred years ago, uh, John G. Payton and his wife, a Presbyterian missionary from Scotland in the New Hebrides, islands in the South Pacific, found themselves surrounded by cannibals intent on taking their lives. And they had nothing to do that night but to fall on their knees in a night of terror, praying that God would protect them. And there throughout their cries throughout the night, uh, they heard the cries of the savages all around their house and they expected them to break through the walls that were around their house any moment. But as the sun began to rise and they're able to see some of the silhouettes there of, of the, of the, of the, of the uh, cannibals around them, to their astonishment they found these cannibals were retreating into the forest. And their heart just soared to God. It was a day of rejoicing. And they bravely continued their work, wondering what in the world ever happened. A year later, the chief of that tribe came to Christ. And as John Payton spoke to him, he was uh, reminding uh, uh, that chief of the horror of that night, because that chief had been involved in that, uh, that, that altercation. And he asked that chief why he and his men had not killed them. And the chief said, who were all those men with, that were with you? And the missionary said, well, there was no men, there was just me and my wife, my wife and myself. And the chief began to argue, saying there were hundreds of tall men in shining garments with drawn swords circling about your house, so we cannot attack you. And that, uh, that story there was, uh, is, is, is an amazing story that an unbeliever uh, saw in his eyes, and yet the person who was in the house, John Payton, had no idea what was going on as he was ministering to those people. A lot of times, uh, angels are depicted as chubby, looking like babies, right? You think of cup- the Cupids, soft, slim, girlish... Uh, much of it from the Victorian age, uh, passing over in our day, shapes very feminine. Uh, in Scripture, the visitation of an angel is always alarming. There's an, always a masculinity about them. The angel always in Scripture has to begin with two words, fear not. C.S. Lewis said the Victorian angel looks as if it were going to say, there, there. <laughs> I heard one theologian who had spent many years in the scriptures and had a Ph.D. and he was talking about angels and he said, very simply, if you saw an angel, you would need to change your diaper. Angels are warriors of light. They are messengers of light. They are not the soft, fuzzy, feminine things that we see depicted at Valentine's Day. For example, when Isaiah saw the Lord high and exalted in the temple, he saw hovering above him two seraphim, burning ones, is what the literal translation is. 
Heavenly beings equipped with wings and two fiery wings covering their faces, two wrapped over their feet, two glowing ones beating the air as they say, Kadesh, Kadesh, Kadesh. Holy, holy, holy. And understandably, Isaiah was gripped by that scene. Manoah and his wife, who were going to have baby uh, a child, uh, which would be the, the judge Samson, in response to an angelic visit, offered a sacrifice. And as the flame blazed up from the altar toward heaven, the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame. Judges thirteen twenty. Angels can definitely be awesome, but what are angels? What does God's Word tell us? Well, they're mentioned over 100 times in the Old Testament, more than 160 times in the New Testament. They exist in vast numbers. I mean, in our shepherd scene in Luke 2, we think of maybe 15 or 20 angels in the scene, but it was probably more like a football stadium of angels around those shepherds in the field. In Revelation 5.11, they're described as assembling in a great throng, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousands times ten thousands. In most cases, they're invisible, as was the case with Balaam, when the Lord had to open his eyes so he could see the angel blocking the way of the donkey. Or Elisha's servant, who had had to have his eyes opened so he could see that he was protected by encircling chariots of fire in the city. When they are visible, they do have a human-like appearance, often mistaken for men. Sometimes they shine with glorious light. Other times they've appeared as, as, as winged creatures, the seraphim and the cherubim. They mean messenger. The name means messenger. And they wield immense power. You think of the angels that stopped entire armies in the Old Testament or delivered captives with Peter's case in Acts chapter 12. Four things that angels do. If you're interested, angels continually worship and praise the God they serve. Secondly, angels communicate God's message to man. They assisted in bringing the law to Moses and the Israelites. They revealed the future to John and the Apostle John, or to Daniel and the Apostle John. Gabriel announced the birth of both John the Baptist and Jesus. Thirdly, angels minister to believers. Psalm 34 talks about it, the angel Lord encamps around those who fear them, and he delivers them. Talk, that's probably where some of the uh, teaching about guardian angels comes from. Also, Psalm 91, you command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They've delivered believers from prison. They rejoice at the conversion of sinners. They are present within the church right now. 1 Corinthians 11. They watch the lives of believers with interest. And Luke 16 talks about the angels carrying away the believer at death to the place of blessedness. Fourthly, angels will be God's agents in the final earthly judgments in a second coming. They will call forth His people with a loud trumpet from the four winds, Matthew 24. They will... and. They will separate the wheat from the, from the chaff. 1 Thessalonians 4 at the rapture talks about the trump of the archangel. The book of Revelation tells us they will open the seals, blow the trumpets, pour out the bowls of wrath, execute judgment against Satan and his servants. 
They are powerful beings. But their power is all delegated. It is not sourced in themselves. This morning I want to talk to you about the supremacy of Christ to the angels. And that's what chapter 1 and chapter 2 are about. The supremacy of Christ to the angels. In chapter 1 verses 4 through 14, we have the Son of the Highest. The Son of the Highest. And he will, in this passage, take seven quotations from the Old Testament. Five or six were from the songbook, the Jewish songbook, the Psalms. One of them from 2 Samuel. Showing how Jesus is supreme above the angels. And as I've been studying this passage, I notice um, that uh, many commentators pass over the whole reason for why he brings this up. Not to just show that Jesus is greater than a, a created being as the angels. But you have to understand, the Jewish law, the Old Testament, was delivered on Mount Sinai by angels. And so angels were held in high regard. And the Jewish law, the Old Covenant was held in in high regard to the Jewish people. But the writer is going to bring the argument and saying, God in these last days has spoken to you by His Son. The law came and was delivered by angels. God has spoken to you by His Son. So hear Him. He is supreme. And it is all about the Word of God and the message of the Word of God being delivered by the Son. The superior new covenant that He brings His people in. This audience was tempted to waver and go back back and forth from uh, back to the old covenant. But this new covenant was brought in by the Son of God. That's why it says, in these last days, in chapter 2, the great salvation, chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, of the Son of God, it could not be sidestepped for another. There was no other. So here he shows that the Son is superior to the angels who delivered the law of Moses because he wants us to understand the new covenant is superior, and it is our only hope, having been ratified in the very blood of Christ. So chapter 1 here will show he's superior to the angels because he's the eternal son, the Lord of all creation, who accomplished redemption. And chapter 2 is going to swing the door the other way. He's going to show the glories of Christ, not in the supremacy over the angels, but in the truth that he was made a little lower than the angels and joined in humanity. He became the God-man. Let's look at our text. Verse 4. Being made so much better than the angels, or being made superior to the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So what is he going to talk about? He's going to lay out why Jesus has a more excellent name than an angel. And he's going to quote in verse 5, For unto which of the angels (coughs) saith, excuse me, Said he at any time, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And the answer is rhetorical, it's none. No no angel has he said this to. Um, We think about Jesus, how he was revealed as God's son at his baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. At His transfiguration in the mount, when God uh, opened the eyes of the disciples and they saw the glory of Jesus shining. And He said, this is my beloved Son. Hear ye Him. 
And then as he uh, revealed him as, as his resurrection, declared him to be the Son of God with power at his resurrection, Romans 1.4, and his ascension. And that quotation in verse 5 is from Psalm 2. Psalm 2. And the second one from 2 Samuel 14. Psalm 2 is a psalm of the king. The original context referred uh, to uh, as David. But the today here, and the expression today, I have become your father, I will be to you a father, they have become a father, there in Psalm 2, uh, was understood to be referring to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Jesus claims this for himself in the book of Mark and other passages. And so in verse 5 where he says, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. That doesn't mean that Jesus all of a sudden started to be the eternal son of God on a certain day. No, the writer is thinking of this title, son. This title, son. You're, you're my son, today I become your father. And the writer is making the point that God never said that to an angel. He never said that to an angel. In the Old Testament, angels are collectively called sons of God. If you read the book of Job, you can see that in some Psalms and Genesis as well. But there was no individual angel that was called the Son of God. We're called sons of God, having been brought into our Father through adoption. But no one is called the Son of God. And the first thing the writer wants us to see this morning is that Jesus is uniquely God's Son. They are not. He is uniquely God's Son. They are not. He bears the title Son in a way that no one else can. He is unrivaled. He is unique. He is equal with God. The Son of God was understood to be a reference to deity. Regardless of what the cults tell you. There is a Norwegian missionary, Marie Monson, who served in North China. And she shares how she experienced the intervention of who she believed to be angels on many occasions there in a hostile environment. She wrote an autobiography of Present Help. It was published in 1960. And she tells how looting communist soldiers had surrounded the mission compound in China where she worked, but never entered. And she leaving the missionaries unharmed, but always puzzled, perplexed. Why? And a few days later, they learned why when uh, one of the uh, uh, soldiers explained that as they were about to enter the compound, they saw tall soldiers with shining faces on a high roof of the compound. Mrs. Mon- Ms. Monson says, and I quote, The heathen saw them, it was a testimony to them, but they were invisible to us. It came powerfully to me and showed me how little we reckon with the Lord, the God of hosts, who sends forth his angels, mighty in strength, to do service for the sake of them that shall inherit salvation. Now what those looting soldiers saw was great and immense, but they were not uniquely God's son. Jesus is supreme. Look at the next verse. And again, when he bringeth in the first begotten into the world, he saith, and let all the angels of God worship him. Now the angels, he saith, who maketh his angels spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. That word first begotten is the the word firstborn. Firstborn. 
And those quotations, if you were to look them up in your Old Testament, you might see they're a little bit different from what you would see in your English Bible because they're quoted from the Greek translation uh, rather than the uh, original Hebrew. And, and, and uh, here he is, he is quoting here from uh, Psalm 97, verse 7, or possibly the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32:43. He's also quoting from Psalm 104, verse 4. And what he's trying to show us here is, is that the angels have a subordinate role. They have a subordinate role. Any authority that would come to an angel has been delegated. They're compared to the elements of wind and, and fire, which are servants of, of God and His providence. They do God's bidding. They're His messengers. They fulfill an important role, but it is an inferior role. And what He is trying to get us to understand this morning is that He is absolutely worthy of worship. He's worthy of worship. Angels are not. Look at the verse, verse 6, let all the angels of God worship Him. Philippians tells us that when He returns, one day there will be unequivocally absolute worship of Jesus, of Him, in all things, every time. Notice that verse 6 again, it says, but... When he again brings the firstborn into the world. That word firstborn. The cults will take that to mean that, oh, he was the first creation. He was the first creation. But that idea of firstborn doesn't mean that he didn't exist at a point in time and then he was brought into the world and he now exists. No, the Bible uses that word of Christ in Colossians 1.18, uh, uses it in Colossians 1.15, Romans 8.19, but it's not used of his origin. In fact, if you go and be to Psalm 89, and it can be used of somebody's origin, by the way, it can be, but it's not used of Christ of his origin, you get a sense of how it's used in Psalm 89, verse 27. Psalm 89, verse 27. It's used, listen, it is used to point out a special honor. The special honor. The first placeness, you could say. The preeminence. The preeminence. Psalm 89, verse 27. says, also I will make him my firstborn. And notice the idea here. Higher than the kings of the earth. So it's a position of preeminence. Position of preeminence. So you have uh, uh, folks come to your door and tell you Jesus is just the the firstborn of creation, meaning that he's the very first uh, 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 of, of all that was created. He just is a supreme creation. You can explain to them that idea here of firstborn means he is the preeminent one. Did not have an origin. But back in our text in Hebrews Chapter 1, the writer here is pointing out that angels are worshippers of this one. They give worship. They do not receive worship. He is uniquely God's Son. They are not. 1956, during the Mau Mau uprisings in East Africa, there was a band of roving Mau Mau rebels who came to the village of Lari in East Africa and surrounded it and killed every inhabitant, including women and children, 300 in all. 
And not more than three miles away was the Rift Valley Academy. It was a private school where missionary children were being educated. And immediately upon leaving that carnage of Lari, those natives, those Mau uh, Maus, came with spears, bows and arrows, clubs and torches to the school with obviously violent intentions. And they could see them in the darkness coming with lighted torches toward the school. Pretty soon there was a complete ring of terrorists around the academy cutting off all avenues of escape. They could hear shouts and curses coming from the Mau Maus and they began to advance until they were close enough to throw spears. And they stopped. And they began retreating. And then they began running off into the jungle. The army, the government's army, was called out and captured at the entire band of raiders, fortunately. And later at their trial, the leader was called to the witness stand. And the judge questioned him, on this particular night, did you kill the inhabitants of the village of Lori? Yes. Well then, why did you not complete the mission? Why did you not attack the school? Leader of the Mau Maus answered, We were on our way to attack and destroy all the people in school. But as we came closer, all of a sudden, between us and the school, there were many huge men dressed in white with flaming swords, and we became afraid and ran to hide. What those Mau Mau terrorists saw was absolutely fantastic. But folks, those angels were simply servants of the one who they worshipped. Jesus is worthy of worship. They are not. Look at verse 8. But unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God. Now, connect that. Unto the Son he saith, Thy throne, O God. I was able to use this in 2006. So we're knocking on doors, passing out tracts. We came upon a home of Jehovah's Witnesses. And there's there's, there's just no argument here. Thy, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of thy kingdom. That was loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. He's quoting from Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7. And that psalm was probably a a psalm about a royal wedding. Perhaps Solomon's wedding. The son has a throne. The son is a ruler. But no one could say this of an angel. This throne will last forever and ever. It is eternal. Angels are not eternal. God created them at some point in time. We don't know when. Third, you see in this passage, the Son loves righteousness. Nothing delights Him more than for someone to love His righteousness. It tells us thirdly here, that He is God. Very simply, they are not. By throne, O God. He gets to the heart of the issue now. We've worked up to it. We've talked about how he's worthy of worship. We've talked about how they're in fear to him, but he gets to it very clearly and says, the Son is God. He gets to the heart of the issue. He rules in righteousness. And it should remind us that in 2 John chapter 7, John the Apostle says something very clearly. He says, For many deceivers are entered into the world who confess not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. 
Look to yourselves that we lose not those things which we have wrought, but that we receive a full reward. Whosoever transgresseth and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. He that abideth in the doctrine of Christ, he hath both the Father and the Son. If there come any unto you and bring not this doctrine, receive him not into your house, neither bid him Godspeed or goodwill. For he that biddeth him Godspeed is partaker of his evil deeds. Reminder, you get Jesus wrong. You're wrong. He rules in righteousness. He is God. The angels are not. He is the God with a scepter of righteousness. He's God. They are not. Fourthly, I'd like you to look in verse 11. They shall perish, but thou remainest. They shall all wax old as doth the garment. What's he talking about? Verse 10. Lord, Thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thy hands. The world is going to, the world is going to pass away. He does not change. Verse 12, and as a vesture, he's going to take this universe, he's going to fold it up like you would a sheet. They shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Fourthly, he's the eternal, unchanging creator. They are not. Angels have power. They are not omnipotent. He is eternal. He is unchanging. Angels have power. They are not omnipotent angels have quite a bit of power I mean we could do a study of angelology and show you the power that angels have been given but in Jude chapter 8 Jude says yet Michael the archangel when contending with the devil he disputed about the body of Moses durst not bring against him a railing accusation but said the Lord rebuke thee we don't know all the situation that's going on in that verse, but it seems as though the devil uh, was seeking the body of Moses. And Michael's fighting against him, but Michael doesn't use his own authority. Michael says, the Lord rebuke thee. Angels have power. They're not omnipotent, though. He's the eternal, unchanging creator the Son of God is. In Acts chapter 12, when, the, when Peter is imprisoned, And the church of God is doing what the church of God should do and gathering together to pray in a prayer meeting. And they pray for Peter's release. And they're surprised when it happens. God sends an angel and he releases Peter. Peter's stunned and the church is stunned. But notice what happened. They prayed to God, not the angel. God sent the angel. They prayed to God. God sent the angel. Verse 13 and 14 of this passage. But to which of the angels said he at any time, Sit on my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Are they not all ministering spirits? Sent forth a minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation. Fifthly and finally, he is the exalted one. They are not. He is exalted. I'd like you to go with either the book of Revelation, please. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 5. 
verses 11 through 13. He receives worship. He's the exalted one. They are not. Revelation 5.11 And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne, and the beasts and the elders, and the number of them was ten thousand times ten thousand, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven, and that would be angels as well. And on the earth, and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all that are in them, heard I say, blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. And the four and twenty elders fell down and worshipped him that liveth forever and ever. If you were to approach an angel and be stunned by its beauty and glory and power, and you were to bow down before it, then an angel would say, Stop it. He's exalted. He is worthy of worship. Go with me to Revelation 19. God is using an angel to reveal to John what he will do. On Revelation 19, 19, verse 9, that angel, or excuse me, Revelation 19, 9 says, And he saith unto me, These are the true sayings of God. The angel with John. And verse 10 says, And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See that thou do it not. I am thy fellow servant. And of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. And then John's eyes lift to Jesus. He sees heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon it was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, perhaps angelic armies. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He is the exalted one. Highly exalted. They are not. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, we have the application of this message that we'll get into next week. Our superior Christ has assigned angels to minister to you. Here is children. And if He wills, He can deliver you anytime and anywhere He wishes, if He so wills. Because, though, Christ is superior to everything. He is adequate in your hour of need. You must believe it. You must trust Him with all that you are and all that you have. 
And on the account of what the writer has said about angels and Jesus Christ's supremacy, in Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4, he says this, Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the words spoken by angels, referring back to Moses' law, given by angels at Mount Sinai, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders, and with diverse miracles, and gifts of, his holy, of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. You know what he's saying here. Jesus is indeed who He says He is, and Jesus is indeed supreme. Jesus is worthy of our obedience. Jesus is worthy of our passion. Jesus is worthy of our love. There's all kinds of crazy, new agey religions about there and our relationship to angels and this and that. There's a whole lot about angels we don't know. You know they're here in this room with us. But the writer here is making the point that Jesus is supreme. Jesus deserves worship. And if Jesus is who this chapter says He is, He is worthy of anything we lay down at His feet and give up to worship. He is worthy of holding on to His truth. He is worthy of finishing the course. He is worthy of receiving the crown that we will one day present to He is worthy. And you may be wavering. You may be discouraged. You may be in sin. Jesus is worthy of your repentance. Jesus is worthy of you living life in Him. You remember what Jesus said to the disciples as that day He was headed. Well, it was the evening of the Passover and uh, He had um, been seeking a place to stay and told the disciples, uh, go to this house and you'll find all this prepared for you. And then that week before, He had told His disciples to go find a colt, a donkey. And that donkey was all ready. That situation was all ready. And that man was ready to just let that donkey go. For the use of Jesus. Because Jesus was worthy. And you remember even before that, in Jesus' first miracle in John chapter 2, when the wedding runs out of wine, and Jesus is approached by Mary and says, What are we going to do? And Jesus makes it happen by turning that water into wine. And Mary says, whatever he tells you to do, do it. Wondering this morning, as we look at the supremacy of Jesus Christ this morning, can you say, whatever he tells me to do, I will do it. Because he is Lord, he is supreme. Jesus says, many say they love me. Here's my family. 
those who hear my words and do them. When the rubber meets the road, do you believe that Jesus is who he says he is? The world attacks him. The world is going to attack you. Is Jesus supreme or is he not? Jesus plus nothing equals everything. He is who he says he is. And he's a great savior. And he's provided and given us everything we need that pertains to life and godliness.